let's pray together. Father, you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see your wonders every time our eyes opened and see your creation. And even more than that, we have your word before us every day. Your perfect, eternal word that gives life and uproots sin and points us to joy. And so often, even those of us who are Christians are so easily distracted. Our eyes are so easily turned away. We are not good at being still. We are not good at waiting upon our Lord. We often forget the God of our salvation. And so I pray as we walk through these next few weeks that you would lift our eyes and fix them on the God of our salvation. That we would not simply see a cultural holiday with some sprinkled Jesus on top, but we're really excited about the bright lights on our streets and the gifts under our tree, but rather we would, from today on, see the hopelessness in a world apart from you and the slavery that we have submitted ourselves to willingly as we tried to step in your place and rejected you as our king, and yet, even with such high-handed rebellion, while we are still sinners, you sent your son for us in Bethlehem in the manger, to break our chains and to bring us peace. I pray that we would no longer walk blind to the wonders of your salvation and that today would be the first step towards that, that your spirit would open our eyes to the wonders of you and that we might see your glorious son in all of his beauty. pray that you would do that by your spirit's power. And in your son's name, amen. One of the strangest things I find as I continually read through the Old Testament is that God, this God who comes down on Mount Sinai and is so terrifying, his holiness is so terrifying to Israel that they tell Moses, you go up and you talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. He's too holy for us. This God commands over and over and over again all throughout Israel's history that Israel is to party that their calendars are to be organized around great celebrations, demanded, commanded feasts and festivals, all so that they might remember God saved us. When we were slaves in Egypt for 400 years with wicked taskmasters ruling over us, our God remembered us, our God split the Red Sea and delivered us. And when we were wandering in the wilderness and had no food, God rained down manna from heaven. And when serpents came and bit us and we were dying and cried out for mercy, God told Moses to wrap a bronze serpent around a pole. And all we needed to do was look and we would be healed and we would be saved. And though we were the smallest nation and are facing all the largest, most powerful nations in the world, our God delivers us into the promised land. God over and over and over and over again to his people demands they remember. Because he knows that we are prone to forget. And we're prone to fill our schedules with 
busy, worthless things that so often pull at our attention and pull our eyes down and we so easily, without even knowing it most of the time, drift away from him. And so God tells us, remember, sit, wait, remember the God of your salvation. And that is what we are doing here for the next four weeks. That's what we do every Easter And that's what we're going to do in this Advent, a time for us as a church to stop, to slow down, and to lift our eyes and remember the God of our salvation, that when we were in the dominion of darkness with no hope of saving ourselves, with every so-called hero that came to save us, whether it be Moses or David, they all fall short when we had no hope. In Bethlehem, a Savior came. That is what we are setting our eyes on this Christmas. That is the series that we are beginning today. And we're beginning today in maybe what you would think the most unlikely place. As we're decorating this church and there's cider out in the foyer, you come in and you hear Lee read maybe the most depressing chapter in the scriptures, a story of our exile. And you might think, Christmas, why are we starting here? And let me just tell you, if we don't start here, the depth of the beauties of the Gospels will be far more shallow. If you don't see the garden home you were made for, and if you don't see the misery of the exile reality you and I live in, the colors of the Gospel will not shine as bright as they ought to. Your crying out for a Savior to come will not be as full-throated as it should be when you see the depths of your own wickedness and the depths of the brokenness of the world that you and I have no power to save ourselves from. So we must start here. Your story starts here. And our looking and longing at Bethlehem starts here. So we will be in Genesis 3. We'll also be in Genesis 2, if you have your Bibles. We'll kind of jump back around between those two. We'll actually start in Genesis 2, so you can flip a chapter before. And we'll look at a couple things today. We'll look at our home, our garden home that we were made for, our exile. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time, the exile we've been sent into. And then we'll look at our longing for return our longing to return to our garden home. So we just read Genesis 3. We'll be in that the majority of our time, but flip back over to Genesis 2, and I will read a chunk of this chapter as well just to show us the home that we were made to live in with God. Look at Genesis 3, or sorry, Genesis 2, verse 7. This is after, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates the moon and the stars and the day and the night and the sea and fills it with fish and the sky and fills it with birds and the land and fills it with animals. And then he makes God in, or makes man in God's image. And then Genesis 2 zooms in a bit and shows us a bit more of the detail of his creation. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden 
to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and delium and oxenstone are there. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love that Genesis 2 is in the Bible because your scriptures don't just start off by saying, there's a God and he made everything, and everything is good. It does start off by saying, like, by saying that, but it doesn't just give you a fact about creation for you to debate the atheists and evolution. It zooms in, and it says, and this God who made everything made a home for you. And it wasn't just good, it was exceedingly beautiful. Look at the detail that we see in here. Notice the author doesn't just say God made trees. It said he caused trees to spring up. And what are they? They're pleasing to the eyes. Their beauty dwarfs the awe of the redwoods. Everywhere in this garden that you look is the most beautiful sight your eyes have ever taken in. The most beautiful landscape you've seen here in this broken world only gives you a hint of the constant beauty of the garden. And the trees aren't just beautiful. What are they? They're they're good for food, which again, isn't just a fact that, and they produced edible things, right? This isn't something like Bear Grylls, like don't eat these berries, they'll kill you. Eat these berries if you're trying to survive, right? Some trees had good things that you can eat. That's not what the author is saying. The author is saying every bite you take in this garden is better than the last. There's no end to this wonderful feast in the garden. Furthermore, it goes on to say there's rivers of life there and there's gold and beautiful stones sitting around the garden, right? The pebbles of the garden are the most beautiful gems that you've ever seen. Over and over and over again, the scripture's telling you, look at the beauty. Look at the detail of the home that you were made for. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see the beauty of the garden home? It is heaven on earth, literally, that God has made for us, where there's only flourishing all the time. There's no decay. It is eternal spring. Beauty everywhere you look, and there's no getting tired of it. Only more and more enjoyment. And Genesis tells us it's not only the land that is beautiful. Look at the people in the land. Those who live in this beautiful garden home, there's perfect unity. There's a helper fit for him to become one, right? They're naked and unashamed, total vulnerability, no shame, 
You're perfectly known and there's no threat of rejection. There's no fear of what if I get found out because there's nothing to find out. Perfect innocence, which this part is difficult for us to imagine. It's, it's I think, easier for us to imagine beauty in the world, right? You can imagine the Alps on steroids, kind of. No one in this room has experienced one second of no shame. Every one of us are born into a different reality. Everyone in this room has secrets that you would be mortified if they got out. Everyone in this room has some version of themselves they're trying to present to everyone around them. Nobody says, I'm vulnerable and I'm unashamed, but that's how it was meant to be. That's how we were created to be perfect contentment and perfect inner peace, total vulnerability and total security. So we see the land is beautiful. We see there's inner peace in our own souls. And then most wonderfully, we have beautiful, perfect fellowship with our creator and God. Notice the care and the intimacy in your creation. God speaks the stars into being. How does he create man? And how does he create woman? With his own hands, he molds and he breathes life and he puts you in his garden that he created for you to live in his garden home with him. We'll see in Genesis 3, we're meant to walk with God in the cool of the day. And walk with God is a, is a saying that means closeness. You see later in Genesis, Enoch walked with God. You see with Noah, Noah, despite all the wickedness of his world, Noah, what makes him different? He walked with God. It's this imagery of close, intimate fellowship. You weren't just made for a beautiful land. You weren't just made for unified relationships. You were made to know your own maker and to enjoy him perfectly in this garden. That is the home that we were made for, and unfortunately for you and I, that is a home that we have never lived in. That is the beginning of our story, but our lived reality, the world that we're born into, is not this perfect garden home. Rather, we are born into another reality. We're born into the reality of exile. Exile from this home. Look at Genesis Three. I want to read it again just so that we can get all the details. We'll spend the majority of our time here looking at the reality that you and I know all too well. Though Adam and Eve are made for this perfect garden home in this paradise with one another, no shame, and with God every day with ever-increasing delight, the story takes a turn in Genesis Three. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not Surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight 
to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, That woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all the beasts of the fields, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword, turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is a radical difference between the first massive chunk of Scripture that we've read and this one. And the most heartbreaking thing is we know this world. The first world we can imagine, this is the world that we know. This is the exile world that we were born into that we know all so well. We were meant for the garden home, but the serpent comes and he lies to Eve and twists God's character in her eyes. He's got questionable motives. The fruit is good for you, he says. And Eve and Adam both believe him and they take of the fruit and they reject God and they rebel and they fall. They bring about the fall and as they fall, we fall with them. And as they're sent out of the garden, we are sent out of the garden with them. So this is the exile reality that you and I live in. And Genesis 3 shows us, while we spent time reading it again, Genesis 3 actually shows us just the details, different sides of this exile reality. So we will see three different things that Genesis 3 shows us. In our exile, there's an external exile. We're sent out of the garden into a broken world. 
There's an internal exile where you were once naked and unashamed. Now you know nothing but shame. And you hide yourself and you make fig leaves to cover your shame. And there's an eternal exile. We're sent away from the God we were made for. So let's look at the first external exile. We see the very good created world that we've just been celebrating in the first few chapters of the scriptures has been broken. Rather than ever increasing joy and happiness in the wonderful garden where there is only flourishing, now the most felt description of our existence is pain. In pain will you bring forth children. In pain will you eat bread. Pain is the greatest descriptor of our existence. We see in in verse 16, even to bring about life, you have to go through pain. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And as we live in this life, rather than this just, I guess, eternal in-shapeness that I guess existed in the garden, what, what do we experience now? In our living, we experience aging. We experience aching. I'm 31, and it's difficult for me to play with my four-year-old, which I think says more about me, but just a general reality. I'm deteriorating, right, quicker than I probably should. We experience aging, we experience aching, we experience decay, and then we ultimately experience death. Hospitals will never go out of business in this broken exile world. We experience Pain, not only pain in our bodies, but we experience pain in our living. Adam is told, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Right? The ground is cursed. Instead of it uh, becoming a beautiful, flourishing garden, producing only wonderful fruit, what does it produce now? Thorns. Instead of bringing life-sustaining food, you go to grab it and it cuts your hand. Pain will come from the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread, right? All the hard work of your life will yield what? Sweat. And then ultimately, what does God say to Adam? Death. What's the reward for all of your hard work in this exile world, right? You, you come into the world through pain. There's pain in your body all throughout this world. You work the ground, keep it. Thorns come up from it. And you're working. What's the reward? Death. You go back to the dirt that you came from. There's an old story of uh, a woman who talked about her whole, her whole life was dominated by dirt. Uh, and she says, in my house, there's just dirt everywhere, right? On the floor, in the beds, everywhere. And so I start at one end of the house, and I clean, clean, clean. And by the time I get to the other end of the house, uh, the front of the house is dirty again. And so the, my whole life is just this battle against dirt. And then finally, when my life is done, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. And that's the reality. That is the painful reality of our existence in exile. There is a very great real sense of hopelessness here. Work as hard as you can. It will get you this. Make all the money in the world. You will leave it here when you go back to the dirt. There is a profound hopelessness in this exile reality that we live in. So we see we're broken. We see our world is broken. And just in case you're not depressed enough, we're really just getting started. 
The next thing we see is our relationships are broken. Adam and Eve, who are a helper fit for one another, the two become one. They're naked and unashamed. Instantly we see, what's their reaction when they're caught in sin? Is it beautiful, perfect unity? Is it laying down life for one another? What does Adam say? That woman you gave me. There's two people that are at fault for what's going on here. Adam says, you, you gave me this woman, and this woman that you gave me, neither of them are me. So I don't know why you're talking to me, God. And what does Eve say? That serpent that was slithering around, the perfect, broken, or the perfect fellowship that we were made for with one another is now radically shattered. And the world is now filled with people who use and abuse one another to get ahead. How do you build yourself up? By tearing others down. How do you react when the spotlight is on other people? You feel competition. You feel anger. Why? Because you aren't being seen enough. We live in this exile world where a great descriptor would be we exploit one another. How can I use you to advance me? Uh, my wife's grandfather uh, passed away a few years ago, and when I first met him, uh, he, a sweet old Frenchman, and he was giving us a tour of Paris, and then uh, Claude and I were engaged at the time, and he had dinner, took us to this nice place, and kind of ignored me. I love him, by the way, uh, but he was ignoring me at the time, and basically kind of convincing Claudia to have a backup plan in case this didn't work out. Uh, and so we were talking to him and trying to talk to him about the gospel. Uh, and he was trying to tell Claudia, there's more to life than the Bible, right? There's other books. Uh, and so it, it was a difficult, it was a frustrating conversation. He was a lifelong atheist. And at one point, he, he stopped and he said, here's just the one thing I know is true. Man is very bad. Man is very, very bad. And that was the one thing he knew that was true. He had zeroed in. In this hopeless exile of a life, man is very, very bad. You hype yourself up all you want to believe in the goodness of humanity. You still lock your door at night because you know what's true. We will do whatever it takes to advance ourselves. That is how we relate to one another in this terrible exile world. And to just capitalize on the hopelessness, there's no fixing this. We've had thousands of years of humanitarian work. Has it worked out for us? Has it stopped war? Has it stopped famine? Has it stopped tragedy after tragedy after tragedy just that we see on the news, much less the countless that we don't see? There is no undoing the brokenness of our exile. As C.S. Lewis said, there is, it is always winter here, and it's never Christmas in exile. No amount of pills will cover up your pain. No amount of medicine can stop the inevitable death that will come for us. That is our external exile. But Genesis 3 doesn't just show us that. It doesn't just show us the world is broken and our relationships are broken. It shows us there's an internal exile as well. We see first, even in the midst of Eve's temptation, in exile, one of the things that happens to us is our desires what we look to to bring us life and goodness and happiness have become radically twisted and perverted to where the things that we think are going to bring us life, the things that cause our mouth to water that we will run after and give our lives towards actually bring death. Did you see the description as Eve is hearing the lies of the serpent? What begins to happen to her eyes before they're truly opened? She sees that the fruit 
is good in her eyes, and it is to be desired to make one wise. You almost get that picture of a fly flying towards the glowing lamp, just thinking this is the most beautiful thing they've ever seen, not knowing it's going to kill it and zap it in a few seconds. That is how our desires have become warped. We're drawn to, we crave the very things that kill us. And what happens one second after Adam and Eve take a bite? Their eyes are opened. And all the peace that they knew, all the vulnerability that they knew, goes away and vanishes. And what floods into their heart? Profound shame. The very thing they thought would bring life has brought death. The thing that they thought would bring them happiness has left nothing but emptiness in their hearts. That is what we desire. That is how our desires have become warped in exile. C.S. Lewis, again, in a different book than the Narnia series, his book, The Great Divorce, uh, he, he gives this analogy of a man who wakes up and he's in hell. And he gets with some other people and they take a bus ride to heaven. So again, analogy, not a theological statement. But uh, the first couple chapters of the book, this man is exploring hell. And it's not what he thought. You know, he's heard of hell in his life. He's realizing he must be dead. And he's looking around and there's no flames or anything like that. It's just kind of a cold, gray place where it's constantly raining. And he's kind of exploring And he's realizing it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And he's realizing he sees all these big, beautiful neighborhoods with all these mansions. But as he walks through the streets, he's realizing nobody's in these houses. They're just empty. And he'll finally find one person, and then it seems like a lifetime until he can find another. And then he comes to realize, in this place where he is, you get what you want just by thinking it. In fact, you get everything you want. And what has happened over time is you think... I want the nicest house I can imagine. Boom, you've got it. And you live in it until somebody else comes by and they annoy you. And what do you do? You move away from them because you don't want to be near them. right? They're making your life worse. And so what has been the result of man getting everything he's ever wanted? Hell and isolation and misery. And he even journeys out and he finds Napoleon in his mansion far away from everybody else. And all he's doing is pacing upstairs back and forth and blaming everybody else for the French losing the war. Everything he's ever wanted, it's not my fault, it's theirs. And what has it created for him? A living hell. And that is how our desires have become warped in this exile. The things that we go after leave us emptier than ever. We see this all the time with athletes and celebrities. There's a famous clip of Tom Brady after his third Super Bowl where he's being interviewed by 60 Minutes. And they expect him to be, he's 27, he's just won his third Super Bowl. He didn't know he was going to win, I don't know, 19 more. But he's being interviewed and he just looks sad. And he says, you know, I I would imagine everybody thinks this is the greatest dream. And I just think, it's got to be more than this. Is this really it? Or Johnny Manziel, the famous Aggie, infamous Aggie, a documentary just came out where he talked about winning the Heisman and getting everything he had ever wanted was the most empty he's ever felt in his whole life. Or Matthew Perry, who, who tragically just passed away a couple weeks ago, in his memoir he wrote just the other year, said he had prayed for fame and it's all he ever wanted his whole life and it took getting fame to realize it's not the answer. We see this play out before us over and over and over and over again, yet we still pursue it because we have warped desires that leave us empty and miserable, leave us filled with shame. And that's the last thing we see. Adam and Eve, they hide from God, but they're really hiding from each other. I can't be known. I can't be vulnerable. 
I have to keep secrets. I can't let anybody else in. And we create for ourselves a very incredibly lonely existence. That's our exile world. That's our external exile, and that is our internal exile. And like the external exile, exile, any attempt to fix that hole in your heart here is futile. Read all the self-help books you want. It will come to the same end of emptiness. Try it. There's a reason why there's a new bestseller every week. It's because the last bestseller didn't work. If someone wrote a true 10 Steps to Happiness, we wouldn't need any other books. But they haven't because there's no happiness here. Shove all the false pleasures you want in that vacuum in your heart. It will never, ever fill it. There is no way to overturn this terrible exile. We try. We numb ourselves with busyness. We pursue achievements, not realizing that we're destroying our family in the wake. We try to go after it, and when we get it, like Matthew Perry, we realize this isn't it, and I've just wasted my life in this pursuit. That is the depressing reality of exile, and I haven't gotten to the worst one yet. Let's get to the worst one. The worst one isn't the external exile. It's not the internal exile. It's the eternal exile. You are sent away from the God you were made for. What's the first thing Adam and Eve do? They flee from the presence of God. They hide the presence that was once the height of their existence to be near with him, to walk with him, to bask in his beams. They now are fleeing from and hiding. And then ultimately, what? They're sent out of the garden, away from him, and there's no way back. At the door of the garden, there's an angel with a flaming sword going every which way. You can never get back in. That's the most tragic. Now, I hope you're as depressed as I feel right now because this is our reality. This is the reality in this broken world. And if you try to find happiness or hope here, it will lead to this same misery. This is our story and this is our world and it's where we would have stayed a world of brokenness and decay and pain and sweat and death and misery and emptiness and isolation and shame and hopelessness with no ability to fix it, no ability to go home, no ability to fix this hole in our hearts that would be our eternal reality. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, following the prince of the power of the air. But thankfully, there is a Genesis 4, and there is an Ephesians 2, and there is a God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our exile, hopeless and forever gone. He gives us a promise in the midst of the most miserable pronouncement possible. Did you see it? Genesis 3.15. Look again. In the midst of the most terrifying pronouncement, God looks at the serpent and says, Cursed are you, and here's what I'm going to do. As our, my people are being sent out of this garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between her offspring and your offspring, and he will crush your head. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So look at me. In the midst of the torrent of darkness that all of you are feeling right now, there is a glimmer of hope. God says, one day a Savior will come and he will crush the enemy's head and he will undo all of exile's carnage. This broken world will be remade. Your cold, distant, hurting heart will be healed and he will bring us back home, not just to a garden land, he will bring us back home to God. So, our story starts in a garden that we've lost, and it starts with terrible chains around our wrists. But God here has now made us a people who look and who long for a Savior to come, knowing every bit of pain that I feel now, when the Savior comes, he will one day heal. And every bit of brokenness that I experience now, when the Savior comes, he will one day make new. He will one day make all things new, and everything sad will come untrue. And so in this exile existence, God has now not made us people who look down in hopelessness, but rather people who look forward in great hope and who cry out for a Savior to come. So here's your one application for this very, very sad sermon. Do not look at this hopeless world for your salvation. Do not look here for your salvation. Self-actualization will leave you more miserable than you started. There is a Savior coming that God has set your eyes on. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, look here. In your pain, look here in great hope that a day is coming when the Savior will come undo all of this and bring you back home. And all the joy that you can only imagine now will flood into your heart. So as we begin this series on Advent, let us be a people who cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourn in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow Put to flight, O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and clothe the path to misery. And look at me. On Christmas Day, you and I get to say, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come for thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Father, we so often are looking at others that we believe are worse than us and other circumstances that are worse than our own, and we uh, tragically numb ourselves to think, it's not that bad, I'm not that bad. And what that does is it blinds us to our need for a Savior. 
And I pray that Genesis 3 would obliterate that, that we would see the depths of wickedness, not so that we could become depressed and become morbidly introspective, God. We don't want that. We want to see that as deep as our sin goes and as deep as our misery goes, the grace of your Son goes even deeper. And the beauty of your Son goes even wider. And as we stop and reflect upon our exile and we cry out to your son, let us see that our cries do not hit the ears of a deaf, indifferent God, but hit the ears of a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They hit the ears of our Father who sees and knows and loves us and out of his great love sent your wonderful son. Let the depth of the misery of exile create in us, ironically, great worship at the arrival of your perfect Son, Jesus, our Savior, who will crush the serpent's head and make all the pain that we know, all the tears that flow from our eyes, be wiped away by his merciful hand. We pray that you would do that in our hearts. By his name, amen.